You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. I've proudly and perhaps both regrettably become a fanny pack wearer. I've worn a fanny pack, I think, every day now for the last month. And it's just so convenient. I can't not wear it. Once I started wearing it, and I'll have to put all, I had all these things in my pockets, right? I'd have a phone, I have a wallet, I have keys. Sometimes I've got house keys, and then I also got a car key. And then if I got anything else, you know, a pack of gum or, a, you know, uh, AirPods. Okay, now I'm running the risk of losing stuff. Stuff would fall out of my pocket. Oh, no, where's my car keys? Can't get in my car. Oh, no, where'd my AirPods go? There's $215. I'll never get um, it was always kind of an inconvenience. Fanny pack? Okay, ladies, I'm sorry. I, I, I may have made fun of purses a time or two in my life. The fanny pack, it, it, it's made me understand why y'all wear purses or take purses everywhere. Because I got this thing strapped to my waist. I don't have to put my phone in my pocket. I don't have to put my wallet in my pocket. I need a pen. Don't have to carry it in my pocket. It's in my fanny pack. I got an extra pair of contacts in case my glasses get foggy or my contacts fall out. Boom, it's in my fanny pack. Uh, I need my wallet already in there. I need a little, you know, a little extra 20 bucks cash or something. Uh, boom, it's in there. Car keys in there. House keys in there. Everything's in there. And I'm not worried about it falling out. And it's easily accessible. It's right there in the front. So a couple of my friends, they're telling me they don't like being seen in public with me wearing the fanny pack. New places, you know, they don't like it. I think most of y'all out there that are hating on the fanny pack, I think you're haters. I really just think you're haters. I think you're jealous that you are not comfortable enough with yourself to wear something that is so obviously convenient, which is the fanny pack. If you haven't given the fanny pack a shot, I am now an evangelist. Um, I'm, I haven't uh, evolved into selling fanny packs, but I might. And when I do, I'll let you know. Um, but that's the decision I'm most proud of and I think has improved my life. The decision that may be second on that list is to talk with our guest today, Chris Malander. He's a corporate strategist and counselor to private companies. Over the past 30 years, he's created billions in financial value for companies in nine different industries across five continents, including the logistics, construction, supply chain, technology, sustainability, energy, and financial services sector. He's an author on corporate leadership and decision-making. His work has been featured by CNBC, Big Think, Directors and Boards, Wharton Business Daily, and POTUS on SiriusXM. He's often asked to comment on economic, corporate, and geopolitical events. Chris's current corporate roster includes national leaders in all of those industries, which are privately held, multi-generational, family-owned companies. He's got a lot of value to add. He focuses on decision-making in a slightly different way than we do here at Decidedly, at least maybe not in a slightly different way, but for a slightly different client. And so we had a lot of crossover. We had a lot lot in common, he and I. He's also the author of Judgment, The Art of Momentous Decision-Making, Lessons for Leaders from Three Crucible Moments in History. Check out the book, stick around, listen to our conversation with Chris where we talked about decision-making in depth. You'll learn something. I'm Sanger Smith. This is Decidedly. You deal with 
you know, I would imagine larger companies than than what we deal with as a corporate strategist. How did you end up there? What did what was your journey like to find an expertise in in this area? Yeah, my my journey has been a bit of a you know a wandering, uh, as it were, in some ways. I uh, originally came into my professional career as a lawyer and moved to Washington, D.C. And I was representing uh, large brands and doing a lot of work with them. You know, the MasterCards, Visas, uh, yeah, Bank Montreal, yeah. Harris Bank, very large organizations of that nature and helping them to manage, um, you know, very large policy related and regulatory type types of issues and did that for a while, but then made a transition. I really wanted to, to focus mo- more on strategy and corporate decision-making and things of that nature. So shifted what I was working on and started an M&A practice that, well, first off, I went to KPMG in, in 2000. And so obviously with 2000, I was there for four years. Tell a lot of people that, you know, that was four years felt like 12 because you are yeah. constantly immersed <laughs> in just a multitude of different issues. You're on a plane nonstop. Um, I had responsibilities in the U.S., Mexico, Europe, Asia. It was a phenomenal phenomenal experience. And, and by the end of it, you're also taxed, you know, you've been through a lot associated with it. And so to your, your original question, which is what kind of businesses do you work with? You know, I was working with the global 2000 brands. This was an exciting time, a lot of change because that's really when technology was, we had the first technology bubble, um, that was really taken off in early two thousands and then popped in 2002. So we had to deal with a lot of change very quickly, both for our client base, as well as for KPMG, which then had spun out its consulting practice, which was called Bearing Point. And, and it was a matter of, you know, we had significant changes in how they wanted to finance companies and, and build and grow and things of that nature. I then went on and created my own M&A practice, which was an international practice based out of Washington, D.C., and, and did a lot of work uh, overseas representing foreign investors yeah. who were buying things. These tended to be high net worth individuals, um, particularly out of the Middle East, um, and on many of them more based out of Dubai, but buying things around the world. So that was an exciting journey associated with it. I then um, ran a company in Silicon Valley as the founding CFO and corporate uh, development officer, and then ultimately the CEO, and then made another change, which was to uh, really focus on building out a, a, a strategy focus. So my work right now, the, the 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 culmination of these disparate parts in some ways and kind of a non-linear journey is I realized that the most, a CEO is spending their time thinking about how to finance the business, how to grow the business, what are my sales doing? What are my people doing? Are we getting the market share we want? Is the product coming along or, or the roadmap developing well enough, et cetera? Are we doing right by our customers, et cetera? But at the end, the fundamental criteria that is happening inside those conference rooms is really about that decision-making process. And that process determines the outcome. Um, So I have now focused in very significantly where I work with um, uh, typically mid-market companies. You know, these are companies between 50 million and 500 million in revenue that are privately held. A number of them are family-owned. A number of them are multi-generational family owned um, and have gone through many of the same issues that that you experience with your clientele, which is succession planning, being able to hand to the next generation, how those transitions are made, dealing with a lot of the diverse, not only tax and finance and and, yeah. and financial uh, financial issues, but also the emotional uh, issues and, and, and how you create a legacy. And it's focused on really refining their decision-making processes because if you can get that right, 
if you have a good game plan, a lot, you know, one of the techniques Sanger that I use is is something that I use with a number of different clients, which is called the walk back method, where I look at where they are, where they want to be in three years. And then we, instead of what typically happens in a typical strategic planning exercise, which is that I look at where I am today, and then I plot out, you know, quarter over quarter or month over month, how do I get to where I want to be? It typically doesn't yeah. work very well. The probability of success is quite low because new issues come up, the market changes, there's a development, you know, interest rates rise, yeah, debt yeah, rises, things are gonna, uh, all those things, they change. Yeah, it's, cra- it's so almost we, crazy to say Q1 2026, this is what we'll be focused it, on for right. that three-month period. Yeah, I mean, that's one right. thing that's right. can, can domino to make that an entirely unrealistic set of standards. Look at the last four quarters and what we anticipate for the next two which is we have been talking about inflation and interest rate. We've been punting over and over and over. It hasn't happened. We worry about is 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 that domino going to fall over the next couple of quarters, et cetera. But where, you know, that if you were to look back at where we were four, five, six quarters ago and do some forecasting, you wouldn't have picked this moment this way. Yeah. So what yeah. we do is we pick that point out three years and then we'll work backwards and, and identify what fundamentally has to be true for us to accomplish that that objective. And so it helps us to crystallize. It takes out a lot of noise from the system and it really then allows you to kind of reveal, hey, our most important thing is that we've got to rebuild this team or we've got to get, you know, we've got to bulk up in this area or that area, et cetera. And so it's usually a, a very um, revealing process. There's a lot of aha moments uh, that come along and then it's a matter of execution against that plan. So it's a, is there something magic about that three-year period? It's a little bit arbitrary. I mean, you can toggle it. You can make it as short as, shorter than two is not that helpful. You can go out to five. Five becomes a little bit more speculative. So I tend to use three because it's concrete enough that people can imagine it. They can envision kind of where they are. Yeah. When you go to five, it's a little bit more of a suspension of reality and it becomes almost too too far for, you know, typically your, your typical kind of private family owned companies, privately held companies that are multi-generational. Now it's different, you know, there's different sets, you know, different clients have different expectations and their leadership have different expectations. I do, uh, historically I did a lot of work in Silicon Valley. There's a very different mindset out there. I mean, the way that they build their companies is to be extraordinarily disruptive to, to find a system that they find is inefficient or broken, et cetera. And completely disrupted. And that journey may take five, 10, 15 years. And so they set a longer arc than what you typically would, I mean, particularly with your with your clientele, which t- you know, they're 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 you've got to ground it just a little bit more. Yeah. That makes all the sense in the world to me. You know, when when visions get too far out in the future, um they they're like a whisper of a dream of a fairy. At some point, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, we're going to quadruple the size of our business. We're going to whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, okay. I mean, there's some, I think there's some value in doing that, in setting your aim upon the largest mountaintop you could possibly imagine and saying, well, mm-hmm. what if we were to do the biggest thing that we're capable of dreaming? Mm-hmm. But as far as like coming up with an action plan, there's a lot of value in saying, okay, three years into the future, I can kind of, I have a much more clear memory of what three years in the past was, that time frame, sure. you know, it feels real. It, my life is not most likely going to be completely upended within a three-year period. 
although I guess it could be. Um, sure. But it, it's not something like 20 where ah, I can't even imagine what 20 years from now, what, what does it look like when I'm, when I'm that age? Sure. And, sure. Uh, you could, you could birth a child and have them graduate college or graduate high school within a 20 year period. That's going to be, that's a long way in the future. Um, and, and, so, I, and I think that's fair, but to, to also be able to understand kind of where you are as that leader, as that CEO or the, the executive team in that spectrum. I mean, this is what makes Elon Musk an outlier is that he has aspirations yeah. of going to Mars. I mean, we couldn't even, you, the mere mortal is like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I can't even dream that. But it was the same when we went to the moon in the 60s. You know, it's like, it's a moonshot. Yeah. And that's why they call it, et cetera. So I think that there's value in having that. But for most of us and most of the, the folks that are, that are leading, you know, day in and day out companies and, 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 and invested extraordinarily into it, you're right. We need something that's a little bit more tangible. And three years is a nice Yeah, it, it, I, I don't think it means you have to throw out that long-term vision, but the, sure. to focus in on the three years and walk it back, that makes sense. When you talk about decision-making for your clients, um, yeah, that's obviously something that we're passionate about. And and sure. I spend a lot of time thinking that's what this podcast focused on. That's the name of our company is decidedly. I, I don't hear a lot of people say, hey, we focus on decision-making as, mm-hmm. you know, it, that's the art and the science that we're trying to improve on. So right. what does it mean to you to improve a decision-making ability? Yeah. So, and, and I released a book in June of this year, which is called Judgment, the Art of Momentous Decision-Making. And it's really focused on those most critical, most significant decisions that are out there, which provides this nice, um, you know, from an education perspective, we look at extreme events because then we learn these lessons. They stand out a little bit more apparently to us. But the intention then is to be able to distill that out and apply it to the everyday decision making that that you or I face or we face with our our, our client sets and that we're trying to help through it. But there are, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the examples that I used in the book was from 2008, and it's associated with the financial crisis that happened at the time. The seeds of the 2008 financial crisis really were not in several days or several weeks in September of that year, which is when the crisis really hit its apex. The, the seeds of that were created uh, four or five years in advance with the, the 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 housing market and specifically the subprime market. And what what really was the tipping point for AIG, who was at the center of that storm, was the fact that all of their financial models were focused on credit risk. They were issuing derivatives that were associated with credit risk in the subprime uh, housing market. It was a very lucrative business for them, and 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 based on their models, had virtually no risk. So they had found this little piece of gold that they were minting over and over and over associated with it. The actual tipping point in that crisis was liquidity risk, which is that somebody, which had never been done before, would issue a collateral call against them and say, I want you to put up money to cover the bet that you're making. That had never happened. It was unprecedented and it was nowhere in the realm of understanding of, of very sophisticated uh, bankers. It hit them in the blind spot. And there's the distilled lesson that I see regardless of whatever the business is. And that's why I focus on decision-making is we will consciously and purposely go out and try to evaluate what is your blind spot in this business. If you are in you know logistics, what is it that's going to change that you're not thinking about right now? A lot of people manage their business, for example, to an 80 to 20 rule, which is a great operational mechanism. You focus on 80% of the problems, 20% is going to be noise. We will spend purposely as part of the processes that are run, um, work on those blind spots, which tend to hide in that 20%. 
It's not that we're going to distract the organization. We're not going to make this a bigger issue than it needs to be, but we want to evaluate it and then build a playbook so that if something arises and, and we want to understand it, we have the ability to do so. I think another key metric associated with the decision-making process is we want to do three things. We want to understand the dynamics at play within our particular business, the market forces, our people, technology, competition, et cetera. So we want to understand what's going on. If we improve our decision-making processes, then we're also able to do some forecasting about what we think is going to happen next. And if we're really good at it, we're able to use the knobs and levers to compete even better. That's the third phase that we're trying to get to, which is I'm of the view that you can use not only improve your own internal decision-making to get higher probability results. That's great. It needs to be done. But if you're really good at it, if you really want to play on the next level, you ought to be able to decrypt your competitor's decision-making approach and find their weaknesses and their strengths and craft a strategy that pierces through. And I'll tell you that, you know, I spent 30 years in, in under NDAs and conference rooms in quiet places, working on strategy for very big brands, Silicon Valley innovators and mid-market privately held family owned companies. We never talk about how is my major competitor making this decision? Where are they weak? What are they doing? What are they not doing? If you can get to that level, you're competing in a whole new way. So that that's why I consider this domain to be extraordinarily relevant it, um, and and important to the success of of a business, and and it's an underdeveloped domain for most of them. Yeah, I agree. I think it's underdeveloped in the average person and the average family as well. I don't I don't think that sure. that we think of our own decision making in the right way, and I don't think most people actually even think about it at all. I don't think I don't think people really think about decision yeah. making. Um, I think people, if they are aware, are aware of consequences of their decision-making. They will say, oh, I've made some good decisions or I've made some bad decisions. And the depth of their thought on that topic is I can observe a pattern of behavior in my life that's yielded positive results or a pattern that's yielded negative results. Beyond that, I, I don't meet a lot of people that off the rip are saying, well, you know, this is what I, this is the process I've walked my mind through in my thought process, typically when I approach big decision. Most people aren't aware of it, but we have one. You're operating with a process and even, you know, a, a, a board sure. of directors at a company is operating with some sort of process, um, whether it's a good one or not, whether it's a thoughtful one or not, whether it's the right one or not. I, you know, I don't know, but I don't think most people think of it. And that's what inspired us. I think us you're spot to, on. Yeah. Yeah. Like spot that's why we started decidedly was to say, well, for, for individuals, we think this is, this is something that's missing and the difference between success, at least personally, when it comes to your money, um, lies in decision-making. And it sounds like that's the same angle that you're taking to these, these companies that hire you. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. You know, and, and it's it's the, the the natural pattern of human beings, which is that we focus on what's in front of us. We're all wired to be attracted to certain things and repel certain things. And 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 it's the reason that we want to have diverse teams, which is that different people and have a certain amount of diversity on a team because they pick up their antenna, pick up different things. And we yeah. want to surface that. We want to bring it into the decision making process. That, for example, is one of these very subtle forces that you're you're mentioning where decision-making is a bit um, understated or not, con you know, there's not a lot of intention about it. You just kind of end up at the consequence associated with it. But a, what happens in a lot of smaller companies in particular, and not, it, it may not be true. I've seen it in some large companies as well, where 
the decision-making team, which tend to be the, the, the senior most executives and some key middle managers on particular issues, think like each other. They mm. like to hang out with people who have the same cognitive, logical flow. They resonate with the same sets of issues. And that makes the decision-making quite efficient, which is why it happens. It feeds on itself, which is that we're able to get through our meetings faster. We're able to get from point A to point B faster in terms of what the strategy is. There is a measure of efficiency associated with it, and, 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 and that is gratifying to most organizations. It also creates a vulnerability on the other side, which is that everybody is thinking about the same thing in the same way, and they're very, they become prone to disruption or that you know, that red hair, you know, that, 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 uh, fly ball from the out, outside, you know, it's just something comes in that I did not anticipate. And again, you get these biases in the decision-making and you get blind spots and that's where, um, both you're vulnerable, but again, you know, come back to, to loop back to, uh, one of the prior points. If you can also then use that to target, it's helpful as well. When you can identify the patterns in someone else's decision-making, you understand what they're not contemplating. And that becomes easier when we go for competing with a client, competing on a pli- uh, with a product or a service, um, is to understand how that got to that particular place and its biases and its blind spots and be able to work that. So what's an example that comes to mind when you think of um, a bad process or, or a bad decision-making framework that you saw when you walked, you first started working with a company? Yeah, so it depends a lot on the size and the people significantly. Let me tell you a little bit about the process to get into that analysis that you're talking about, which is that typically when I come in, we have something very overt that we're trying to accomplish. So there is an objective goal that we're trying to hit within the next six months, 12 months, or three years, as we've talked about before. That might be, we want to be able to do a recapitalization of the business, we, or we want to be able to transition it to our kids, or we might want to do an M&A or exit or something of that nature, or I need to grow. I need to double the size of this business. It needs to be go from $50 million to $100 million. So we have that as an objective endpoint that we're looking at. Then when I come in, I spend quite a bit of time working with the, the key people that will be part of that decision-making influence to understand where they're coming from. And we literally will walk through some, I'll, I have some mapping exercises that I go through with people, with CEOs, um, and, and have done, for example, with YPO, Young Presidents Organization, yeah. which is a, a fantastic organization for, for young leaders. And I take them through these workshops where I will put uh, together a graphic which has eight slots, which ask them about that objective point that we're trying to re- achieve in three years. And then in their mind, plot on every on all eight axes who it is that they're going to talk about, talk to about this decision. Who are the most influential people that are going to shape their view about how to get there and whether that's a good idea. And it tends to be not just, oh, my CFO, my board of directors, although they'll be on the list. Oftentimes it's my wife, it's my son, it's my dad, it's some mentor, it's all these other influential people. When we purposely do that, and that's one of these aha moments that you get when you come into it, is that they realize that the decision-making is not just a product of how we get there financially and do I have the right sales guy to hit the numbers? Do I have the right financial CFO to get the financial engineering or the debt or the equity I do need to, to make this play? But it's influenced by people who are vested in my own future emotionally, who have legacy issues, who have their own agenda. Um, and it really starts to attenuate that decision-making process. And all of a sudden you're able to start compartmentalizing 
the reason that I don't want to go, I, I want to go path A, but not path B is because my wife doesn't like path B. Oftentimes that's in a, almost at a subconscious level. Um, and when we bring it up to the top, then we can have some rational conversations about it and then start working through how do we decode this? How do we break down that influence in your decision-making? That's a, that's one of the deeper seeds in a blind spot. Yeah. In my experience, there's a lot of those barriers that prevent certain paths from sure. being truly discussed and people hesitate to speak it out loud. They hesitate yeah. to say, my wife doesn't like that. And it could be, I don't want her to feel guilty for controlling the process. I don't want to f- her to feel like sure. she's the, telling me not to do something. I don't, maybe I don't even want to admit to myself that I'm allowing that to happen. Um, Correct. There's any number of reasons that would, that cause people to feel that way. You probably see it quite a bit in the nature of your business where you see that and it's an unstated barrier. Yeah. And it's difficult when, when that's not spoken because if it's spoken, it's fine. You know, Hey, okay. Maybe, maybe we're cool with that. Um, maybe that we can still find a positive path forward. We can still achieve the objective. We're just not going to go path B because you know, wife doesn't like path B. Okay. Okay. Well now we, now I also know to not waste your time bringing it up anymore. <laughs> you know, so, I was I ask you, so, so do you dig into it? I asked, and let me ask you, what do you do in that situation? Do you draw into it? Do you push into it or do you simply acknowledge it? And then we all kind of move on. Yeah. Sometimes, um, sometimes I can kind of sense a, there's, there's two ways to go for Like if a, a family is, is wanting to transition the company, there's a lot of different ways that that transition can go. We can sell the company to a third party, sell the company to the next generation, uh, continue working in the company, but sell it, uh, leave the company as soon as you said, like, there's a lot of different ways you can structure that generational transfer, particularly if a husband and wife are working in the company together. And well, now the dynamics are even more complicated. You know, maybe, maybe one of you is ready to get rid of the company and the other one says, this is my life's purpose. I, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do with my time if I, if I stop working here. Um, so if I see that one path maybe would provide a, an easier route to ach- achieving some of the family's objectives, right? And, and there may be family, there may be financial objectives like, um, you know, a certain date of achieving financial freedom or, you know, the freedom from not having to work, or maybe it's like an, a, a charitable endeavor. Hey, we want to be able to give this money or we want to buy this second home or whatever it is. There's something we want to do. They go, this pathway seems to be the most mathematically, the most, most fruitful pathway. Most people never choose the math answer. There's a human answer because we have emotions and we have wants and desires. And so when I recommend a human or a, the mathematically optimal model and people are hesitant to accept it, I know that there's emotions at play that I'm not aware of. So I spend some time trying to find what those emotions are. A lot of times I can uncover it and we don't necessarily need to say it, but I would say that after a few, after several years of working with, with clients and having success, I got more confident in being able to just say, Hey, Chris, uh, you just don't want to do that because your wife doesn't want to, right? In a way that people go, yeah. <laughs> and most of the time when people get called out on it from someone who knows what they really want, um, they accept it. And then it's easier because then instead of being 
hesitant to accept the secondary route because they're they feel guilt that they're leaving money on the table, for example. Like, like let's use the example and say, hey, you can sell the business to this third party, but they want you out the door, right? But they're going to give you $10 million. You could sell it to this other company or to maybe you could sell it to your kids for $7 million, uh, but you're going to have to work there for an additional three years. And that's what the that's what your wife wants to do. She wants to do that. She thinks it'd be good for the kids. She really likes working there. She's not done. She's not ready to give it up. If there there can be guilt in the mind of several members of the family say, well, we're leaving $3 million on the table. That's stupid. That's crazy. Why would we leave $3 million on the table? I mean, that's a lot of money. But once we speak it out into existence and say, oh, there's very valid reasons. This is, you know, something for the for the health, the financial health and the pursuit of finding a purposeful life for your children. That's the greatest gift you could give them. Um, it's continuing the family legacy, which is so cool and beautiful. And it allows you the opportunity to continue to have social connection with your coworkers, your former, now former employees and connection in a very unique and special way with your children who are going to be running this business. Okay. Is all that worth $3 million? Who knows? But if we can determine that you don't really need the $3 million, the $3 million is not going to measurably impact your pursuit on these other objectives, then it's really good for us to say it because then it's an easier, more guilt-free path to pursue that plan or that option B, if that answers what was on your mind. Yeah, that's that's, uh, that's super. That's extremely valuable. And I think that, that, that provokes a number of issues. I'll give you another story. I have a client who's relatively new right now who is 44 years old, has successfully built three different businesses that he continues to own and operate, et cetera, has a wife and and a couple of small children, et cetera. He was recommended into me because I've done some work with a peer of his who the, the, the question is, can I take this business who ha- which has a, a value of X and can I get it X times two in what period of time? So that's that objective reality that we're trying. That's the... Uh, the front door that I'm walking through is to figure out, can we get to that particular place? And then walking back from there, what I realized, and you asked about, the, about this originally, which is a bad decision-making process. What he, what I discovered is what he's really asking me is that he is the CEO of privately held company. He owns the majority of the shares associated with it. Number of family members, other kinds of advisors, other folks that are involved, all of whom take direction from him in kind yeah. of a hierarchical decision-making structure, all are dependent upon him and his decisions. And he's done extremely well. So he has a track record of success and they love it and they support it. What he's really asking me is I want to go bigger, but I don't have anybody around me to help me go bigger. I am stuck in this kind of template that has emerged over the last 20 years of building these businesses, which has worked really nicely, but he's also capped out to tell you the truth because he can't scale now. He wants to, there's a, there's an itch in there, which says, I think I got a lot more to give. I think this could be a much bigger deal. I think I could, it's not just about the wealth creation, although that is a significant driver, which is, I think I could not, you know, by the time I, you know, hang up the cleats, this business is three, four, five times worth what it is today over the course of the next 20 years or so. But I don't have the decision-making structure to get me there. The decision-making structure that I have is one that 
you know, for my family, you know, as I'm supporting the kids and, and we have a great lifestyle and we enjoy our weekends. I've got a bunch of, you know, some additional family members that enjoy working in the business. And they tell me it's wonderful and they're happy. I've got advisors in that are like, Hey, you're doing great. Just keep doing it. Go, go, go. Yeah. The, the, the fabric, there's nothing ostensibly wrong with this decision architecture of the current business, except that it's not going to get him to the place where he wants to be. And he doesn't know how to get there. And so that's, that's, that's a, a typical type of scenario, which is I have this aspiration, but my decision archetype or my enterprise archetype for decision making inside my organization um, won't get me there. That's a much more sophisticated way than of saying it than he came to me, but that's really what's going on. I can't get there from here. And I know it. what do you normally see happen in these companies once they recognize the truth in what you just said? Yeah, it can go a lot of different pathways. It's a somewhat similar to the the conversation you just talked about with the, the the different feather of options. And you'll see a lot of different behaviors. You'll see people that want to dig in and are willing to make the change. They are probably the minority, uh, to be very honest. Um, you'll see a lot of people that once they are educated as to the realities of what's going to happen, um, to make that, like, I really want to step up. I want to play at a higher level. I want to get bigger. I want to scale. I want to have much more sophisticated management teams. I, you know, this is going to be a bigger legacy, uh, play for me. They will go through a fairly significant journey. I have another client where we're doing that right now, really successful second generation family business, extremely profitable, but was structured as a, a, a small business as a, uh, an S election, et cetera they will struggle to scale that business because of the tax elections that they have made. There, it, it puts a de facto, there's some advantages from a tax perspective and there's some significant drawbacks from a, um, uh, a corporate growth perspective in that long-term vision of what they want to achieve. We're going through a, a reorganization process. The original process was designed to be about four months long. It will end up being 18 months long to, to plot that journey, to restructure the company associated with it. He has this, in this case, he has the persistence, he has the desire, he has the um, the fortitude to go that journey. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're like, you know what? I looked, I looked through the window. Yeah. I, it's attractive, but I'm okay. I, I like where I am and I'm not really- And that's ready, a great ready, ready realization. And that's fine. Agree. Yeah. I think a lot of people would be happier if they were comfortable saying- there's a growth trajectory, there's progress, there's opportunity in front of me, and I'm turning it down. I'm willingly not going to pursue it. A lot of times what I see people do is they feel like that's wrong, like that's a sin to say we're not going to do do this, that's, which is possible. It's like you could do it. You have the resources, you have the talents, you have the ability, yeah, you, you have the work ethic. I mean, I guess, right? You, you could do this. And to say, ah, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to put the work in. I don't want to make the, I don't want to take the risk. I don't want to do this. What they do is they just don't do it. <laughs> they say they'll do it and they won't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we're going to, you know, this is what we're going to do next year as a company. This is what we want. This is what our goals really are. And then they don't take step one toward that goal. Sure. And you keep asking, hey, why, why, so why can't we get things done? Why can't we, um, it's like people who say, well, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna get in really good shape. Okay. Well, you right. didn't go to the gym. You didn't do it yet. You didn't do it yet. At some point, you got to say, I, I'm just not gonna do it, and that's okay. That's fine. I don't want to do it. 
Um, but the it's only a great bad parallel. choice, yeah. the, the bad outcome is to lie to yourself and say you're going to do it when you know you're not going to do it. There's freedom in saying, right. I'm not going to pursue that. Yeah, it's a conscious choice. I feel much better with a client who's made a conscious choice, looked through the window, saw what it was, understood it, and either chose to go through it or chose to come back, but at least they knew. What I what I am always disappointed by, because I like the sports metaphors, I like the ones that that I like working with athletes in particular, because you can always say, you know, you bench 225, we're going to get you to the 315. They're like, yeah, show me how. Let's go. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, with that said, there is, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate those who, who, to your point, will go up and understand what is involved. Where I get nervous for them is where they have a successful business today, but they're not able to kind of keep pace and innovate and realize yeah. that the market keeps spinning faster and faster, regardless of what sector you might be in. We are in a, a point in time in which the cycle times get much, much faster and your business can erode quite quickly. You can go from having that cash cow, beautiful little business, protected environment with a moat around it, and um, it can slip away from you quite a bit unless you go look at the window and look through it and see what's out there and kind somewhat consistently make that decision or 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 step away from it. What I what I get nervous for is the people who like look once and then they're done and they close their eyes and they're like, I'm just gonna keep doing what I do because it works. Yeah, that that's where it can can get dangerous is um I think I don't I don't think it's an acceptable decision to say I'm not gonna grow my company. I do think it's an acceptable decision to say, well, I'll caveat that. If that's your decision, then you've answered another decision, which is, should I sell the company? <laughs> I don't want to grow my company. Okay, you should totally sell it then. Uh, you should sure. get out of this game. But the growth doesn't have to look like a a anybody else's interpretation of growth. Like We mm -hmm. ought to be improving. We ought to like be that. making it better. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean we got to hit 10% you know, earnings growth sure. this quarter or else. Like the growth That's a great that frame. Yeah. Yeah. And the growth like you've that. experienced in the past doesn't have to be the growth that you you will experience in the future. You got to get better. You got to improve. You got to adapt. Um, and if your organizational structure is not improving, your product's not improving, your marketing's not improving, like that that's a problem. But but it doesn't just have to be, oh, top line revenue has got to, got to increase. And that's why I think sure. people get really turned off. So what, what do you think is... Um, you, you talked about the, the three-year vision and the looking back at decisions that need to be made today. What's the biggest decision tip that you could give to business owners? <laughs> there are a bunch. It's a, it's a tough question. Here, here's one that is a bit of an aha oftentimes for, for uh, a number of CEOs, particularly private company CEOs, which is we deal with friction and noise and pressure and chaos and you see it all the time and you try to make sense of it, et cetera, there's a natural uh, human tendency to kind of step back from that, to withdraw from that because it's unpleasant and it's chaotic. And I don't under necessarily understand what's going on and I don't understand what it means yeah. for me. So there, there can be a withdrawal associated with it. Some of the best leaders, however, understand that that's your opportunity to look in, so to lean into the, the friction, to the noise, the pressure. And there's a, there's a reason why, which is A, recognize that most of the population is going to withdraw from it. So it, 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 you are at a competitive, you're creating a competitive strength in your decision-making by leaning into the chaos. Um, 
The second reason is because oftentimes in those moments, the rules change. So there will be some sort of inflection point that happens when you have turbulent times, high pressure, et cetera, which allow you to, to reframe how you compete, how you grow to your point, you grow in different ways. This is the opportunity to redefine how you grow because you saw, you know, it may not just be that I want to achieve, you know, 10% revenue growth year over year, but instead I just saw in this chaos a the inspiration to to evolve my product or to add on to it or service or whatever it might be, that we're going to come at this market in a different way. And I think that that is one of the bigger aha moments for a lot of the CEOs when I push into this is they start looking at the world in a different way. Then, you know, it, the, the natural tendency is I've got, um, you know, quarterly targets I'm hitting, monthly targets I'm hitting. I got uh, payroll every two weeks. I've got cash flow forecasts that I'm working on, et cetera. I am focused on that. And so I'm down in the weeds. And then sometimes it's a breath of fresh air to say, look, here's what, when you pull your head up and you see this, let's go out and purposely look for some opportunities that are tucked away inside there. And that can be extremely um, invigorating for everybody involved. You know, all of a sudden there, it can pump a, a, a dose of energy, adrenaline into an organization if managed in the right way. Um, so yeah. that, that you can find that, that, the, the opportunity for growth and that can be rewarding as well and unto its own. I mean, one of the things that, that happens as a product of that, that I spend a lot of time working with teams on is it inspiration like that, that allows them to work on their own learning curves. All of a sudden I have the heads of HR or the CFOs or, you know, safety and compliance thinking about new sets of problems in a new way and their experience within the company has improved as a product of that. And so that's, I find that gratifying oftentimes as well, which is that they are starting to diversify how they think about the world and contribute, et cetera. And that's invigorating. That helps their loyalty to the company. That helps them improve their productivity. It, 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 it we, I love that engagement that comes off of that process. Yeah. That's the exciting stuff when, when business and mindsets are actually getting transformed. Yeah, it really is. And I think that's the with both of our, with your business as well as mine, we have an overt purpose with is with, you know, financial planning or I help work through, you know, significant corporate decisions, but it is that shift in mindsets, which is really the jewel that's tucked in there. Yeah. That, that's when the magic happens. That's when people are yeah. saying, thank you. Thank you, Chris. This has been, this is worth it. Yeah. They, even when they, yeah, they might absolutely. come in a skeptic. Um, but when their mindset is upended and transformed, that's when they're really, you know, what else happens when that happens? What else, what also happens at that time is that we're not just a, you know, a business relationship. We become friends and colleagues at that moment in time. When you understand the problem and the dynamics that are at play, you are, I've expanded my friends. They become, uh, I'm part of their friend network and that is super gratifying. Yeah, you're right. That I, my, my best client relationships, uh, they introduce me to people as their friend. They don't say this is my yeah. advisor. Uh, and that's because, yeah. Hey, we, we got this level of, um, connection that it doesn't really happen a lot in life where somebody witnesses you and somebody says, Hey, I see exactly what you're motivated by. I see exactly what you're struggling with. Uh, and then beyond right. that, I'm going to, I'm going to ride with you and see if we can figure it out. Right. And, and that's extraordinarily and, and that's, valuable. And that's what, that's what this problem solving is about, which is not only just trying to solve the problem about how to achieve their financial objectives or their wealth objectives or whatever it might be. Yeah. But when you understand the depth of how those decisions are being made, 
you all of a sudden they they there there's a re- realization that you're their best protection as well, their best defense. What am I not perceiving? What am I not seeing? Is uh, seeing, etc. And that has nothing to do with, you know, the the reason that we walk through the door, which is to work on some sort of financial issue. It's like, how do we get this right? Yeah, one hundred percent. Where can people connect with you and find more about the work that you're doing? My website is called chrismaylander.com. The book is Judgment, uh, The Art of Momentous uh, Decision-Making, which is available on Amazon. It's available in hardback, paperback, and Kindle. And then I'm always available also at chris at chrismaylander.com. Yeah, it's a great book, by the way. So definitely check it out. Thanks again for being here, Chris. We appreciate it. Thank you, Sanker. It was fun. My biggest takeaway in talking with Chris today is that mindset transformation is ultimately the aim. If we're seeking to improve decision-making and mindsets don't transform, we've probably failed in a pretty massive way. So your mindset's got to completely change. Your beliefs have to completely change in order for you to truly improve your decision-making process because the process is what we're aiming to improve, not the outcomes. The outcomes are outside of our control sometimes entirely outside of our control, but the process isn't. Process is 100% in our control. And in order to change the process, most of the time, we've got to change our mindset. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.